Hi there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices would have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode number nine. From the Cradle, published in Shelf Life in 2002, and again in Starwater Strains in 2005. From the Cradle is a short story about a young man working in a bookstore. In the course of the action, a customer comes in to sell a used book they call an incunabula, a, a very old book. And they have special conditions for selling it, that the owner of the book will get to approve whoever buys it. It's put up for sale in the bookstore, displayed open on a stand, and interspersed with the frame narrative about the young man in the bookstore are these excerpts from the book as the display is changed and different pages come into view. The first of these sections is about a dwarf and a sphinx. The second about a prince who doesn't know he's a prince. And then the third about a young man who is supposed to go and become a member of a religious order, but ends up working in a bookstore instead. And then the story closes with the owner of the book returning. And in a shocking twist, she's no longer an old woman who is selling her dead husband's book, but she is a young woman who's looking for her second husband. That's a very good summary. Thank you. Also, I feel like it was a deceptive summary because I feel like this was really dense and I'm not sure where to start. Well, I think we should start with an incunabula. Oh, do you? Well, just because I like to say incunabula. Okay. Well, what is that, Amanda? Well, an incunabula, as I understand it, is a book that comes from the infancy of printing. So the Latin root is infant or child. Mm -hmm. And incunabula are defined as the early printed books from the invention of printing to in around 1440 okay. uh, to the end of the 15th century. So till until 1500. And so there, there are the early books that were printed. Most are exquisitely beautiful because, of course, early printing needed to compete with the manuscript tradition. And so they tend to have hand-colored capitals, wide margins, and are on beautiful linen paper. Okay. So this is not going to be manuscripts, so people aren't writing out things by hand. No. Manuscripts okay. are manuscripts. Incunabula are early printed books. So here's a question. Okay. Gutenberg Bible. Yes. Is it, okay, it is one. That, that is the definitive incunabula because okay. it is officially the first printed book. Okay. But any book printed up until 1500, and there are quite a few of them, qualifies as an incunabula. Incidentally, a host or two of this podcast may own a page from an incunabula, not a whole incunabula, <laughs> but a page from an incunabula, a 1489 printing of City of God. So here's a question. When did we stop using that term? Like, when does one book become not an incunabulum? The date that it changed? Yeah. Is there a technical reason or is there a economic reason? My understanding is that the term originated in collecting circles as a way to designate the earliest printed books 
as a collectible item. So this is something that later people applied to the time. Oh, yes. Okay. Incunabula was not a term used contemporaneous with the Incunabula period. Yeah. It didn't really enter circulation. I, I haven't done you know, a, a word search on this or, or defined it. But my understanding from my foray into the book collecting world is that it didn't come into common use until we're looking at the development of archives and the museum type work of the 19th and 20th centuries. Okay, that makes sense. So the book that we're dealing with inside the short story. It's called an incunabula. Yeah. And defined within the short story as a book that comes from the second millennium which is a broader range of time than I just gave, the 60 years from 1440 to 1500 versus any time within the second millennium. Is Meditations on Middle Earth uh, incunabulum by that definition? No, because it comes from 2001. Oh, okay. So it just, <laughs> just barely missed. Okay. But no, I think that's a good call out there because it's in-universe definition. Versus our universe definition. Yeah. Before we get too much further, did you read the introduction by Neil Gaiman? I did. I did too. Okay. Very odd. So last podcast, I pointed out that Wolf is able to talk about himself, but not talk about himself. I don't think Gaiman has that characteristic. I don't think so either, because it's about four bookstores yeah. That he grew up with and were defining moments in his life. However, I don't think he read any of the short stories in this anthology. As far as I can tell, none of the bookstores or his stories about bookstores connect. Connect. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. I've mentioned the title of the anthology that it was published in and purpose written for. Yeah. Uh, Gene Wolfe wrote the story specifically to have it included in Shelf Life, Fantastic Stories Celebrating Bookstores, edited by Greg Ketter and with an introduction by Neil Gaiman. Greg Ketter, he commissioned the work because he had owned a bookstore for 25 years. Yes. And in fact, still owns the same bookstore. Oh, okay. So I did a little research on him because I thought I recognized his name. And he has a fairly famous bookstore that was damaged in the rioting in 2020 oh. in uh, Minneapolis. Okay. So there were two incidents around the George Floyd protests, one where someone broke in and looted the electronics that were in the store but left all the books behind <laughs> and attempted to set books on fire, but oh. one book... They only lit one book on fire and it put itself out. <laughs> and so it it did not burn. Although in those same riots, there's an, another very famous bookstore that was burned to the ground. Mm. And then a few months later, Ketter and his employee were attacked by a couple of ruffians. And he chased them away with a baseball bat and then reopened the shop as usual the next morning. So, okay. So I had recognized his name and knew that his bookstore was fairly famous. So this came out in 02, and now the bookstore is, as far as I know, still open and still running. So he's probably at 50 years now. Okay. Well, at least at the time of the recording. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So then Neil Gaiman is the one that wrote the introduction for it. And he, he does. He describes different bookstores. But I'm not sure what we're supposed to get from that other than knowing that Neil Gaiman likes these bookstores. 
I'm not sure either. So if I'm doing a generous reading, it's that if you expose a child early to books, that child will be interested in books for the rest of their life. I don't really know if that's what he was saying. Right. Maybe he's actually talking about his own fiction and then these stories about these bookstores are supposed to be informing his fans about turns or something, right. plot points inside his fiction. I don't know. The introduction didn't do anything for my appreciation of bookstores, which was formed long ago. It seemed to me like Neil Gaiman is a popular enough author, and he was asked to do the introduction for the uh, kind of cover. Yeah, for, the, for the notoriety. Yeah. Uh, let's, let, let me put your name on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. That's where I landed. I wasn't entirely sure, and I, wasn't, I didn't know if I'd missed something, so I had questions about that. All right, so back to From the Cradle. It is the first story in the collection. And so unlike a recent anthology we may have discussed, whoever was in charge of organizing this, well, Ketter, did a good job in putting the Gene Wolfe selection first. Start with your strongest. Yep. And then end with your second strongest. Exactly. So this short story starts with a quote. It does. Maybe from another book. Yes, perhaps an epigraph, if you will. An epigraph. A woman hath nine lives like a cat. Wonder what that could mean. I don't know, but it's by John Haywood. Yeah, did you do any in any investigation into this John Haywood character? I did. Oh, dear. This was uh, quite a bit of reading. John Haywood wrote a book, and it's a dialogue of the effectual proverbs in the English tongue concerning marriages. It's often shortened to the Proverbs of John Haywood. However, I should point out here that he did not write these Proverbs. He was a collector of Proverbs. Yes. So he would go out and listen to people in the street, in the market, right. at church. He had a notebook and he would write all these Proverbs down. Right. So what he did is he constructed a hundred page poem where he incorporated all of these Proverbs into the poem concerning advice about marriage. And part of the way that he does this is he, he shows how the proverbial wisdom changes depending on the situation. And so in the poem, everything that is a proverb he heard is italicized. And then his own words, they're in non-italic quotes. The summary of this poem is, and I'm condensing 100 pages down here, but the reason I'm doing this is because I believe it is a background structure for the short story. Okay. If I'm wrong, we can cut this out later if you yeah, absolutely I'm sure, disagree with me. I'm sure Wolf just accidentally put that epigraph in. I'm Well, he often does. <laughs> you know, just throwing stuff at the dartboard. So a young man comes to Haywood and he asks his advice on marriage. And Haywood asks him to elaborate on the situation. And he says, well, there's two women I'm interested in. One is a young woman and she's a maid, but she has no money. She has no connections, but she's very beautiful. And there's other men who are attracted to her. And then he says that there's a rich widow whom we later find out in the narrative. She's probably in her 60s or 70s. She's very rich, wealthy, but she has no looks. Well, she's 70-something, and this is in the 16th century, so. Yeah. Haywood says, well, this reminds me of a similar situation. 
So then we're a story within a story where Haywood begins speaking about when his wife and him were back in London, they had two neighbors. So one on one side was a man who married a rich widow. And then on the opposite side, they had a guy who married this beautiful young lady. And so they start out with the young maid and her marriage. And so what ends up happening is they get married and then they try to live off love. This That's a quote from the- It's a, a proverb. A proverb yeah. in there. Because they're trying to live off love, they have no money, they're constantly running up debt. They took this marriage without the blessings of their families. And so their families are very irritated that they kind of jumped into the situation without any thought for their future. And so then they both separately come to Haywood and like, we have a problem. We need your advice. And so his advice to them is go make amends with your family and see if one of them will take you back in and then you will have some provision and maybe they can give you a trade or set you up with some money so you can start your own business, that type of thing. Both families are like, you wouldn't take our advice before. And so they toss them out. And so it ends with, thus, though love decree departeth death to he, yet poverty parteth fellowship we see, and doth those two true lovers so dissever, that meet shall they sealed win, or haply never. Yeah, they're never going to be happy because you can't actually live on love. Yes. Okay. So that's the end of the first section. Mm -hmm. The man who came to Haywood's like, oh, I'm going to- So marry the rich old widow. I'm going to, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to go make, so his comment is, sweet beauty with sour beggary, Nay, I am gone to the wealthy withered widow by St. John. Then Haywood tells him, wait, for I have only told half my story. And so they decide to come back tomorrow and consider that. And hear what it's like to actually be married to the old widow. Here's the description of the widow. I'm sure it's very charming and not at all misogynistic. You would be incorrect. Oh, dang it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) 50 year ago, I knew her a trim maid. Whatever she were then said one, she is now to become a bride, as meet as a sow to bear a saddle. She is, in this marriage, as comely as a cow in a cage. Charming. Yeah. She's described as fat. She has no teeth. Her nose and chin are half an inch apart. Oh, dear. So they can't kiss. (laughs) Oh, no. And since she's old, she always wants to go to bed early. And she's always cold, so she's always wanting to stay under the covers. Right. The man comes to Haywood, and he says, Her carrying carcass, he said, is so cold because she is aged and somewhat too old. Somewhat. Yeah. They have problems, and because she starts to bicker with him, he never wants to be home, and because she always wants to be in bed because she's cold, he's like, this is boring. So he starts going out. Right. And because he's always going out and he doesn't feel welcome at home, he starts going through her fortune. Yes. Spends all the money. Yep. And so the widow comes and asks Haywood, what do I do? And he advises her, stop arguing, stop bickering. Then she argues with him. Of course. And and says that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then so later, John Haywood is out on his back porch. And he overhears the conversation where they're trying to make amends. And the widow invites the man, her husband, back in. And he says he's changed his ways. 
Part of the problem is, though, is he doesn't change his ways because the situation hasn't changed. And so they are unhappily married and they also part. Okay. And so the story ends with the young man who originally came to Haywood. He says, here I was worried that there's a widow and a young maid that men are in line to marry. He's like, I would have married them both, but now I now want I won't neither. marry either of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He needs to split the difference and find, you know, a 40-something woman. <laughs> well, so this quote here comes in the middle, and I feel like Wolf selected the most confusing quote. No. Yes. What? Yeah. It's a section where Haywood and the two couples are at dinner. They've been invited over to the rich widow's house so she can serve them dinner. And there's a series of conversation points where people are talking back and forth. But because nobody's identified at this point in uh, kind of literature, it's he said, she said. Right. Without. No say, dialogue tags that tell you who. Yeah. Okay. So the section, husband, quoth she, ye study, be merry now. And I, I think this is the maid that's speaking. Mm -hmm. And even as you think now, so come to you. Nay, not so, quoth he. So this is the one that married the young maid. For my thought to tell right, I think how ye lay groaning wife all last night. Husband, a groaning horse and a groaning wife never fail their master, quoth she, for my life. So yeah, it was a sex joke. Yes. And so part of this is they're the ones living off of love. Right. But they're eating at the table. Yes. Of a couple who has no sex life, but they have a lot of money and they can eat well. Yes. No wife, a woman hath nine lives like a cat, is the response. Well, my lamb, quoth she, you may pick out of that. As soon goeth the young lamb skin to the market, as the old use, God forbid, wife, ye shall first jet. And I'm a little unclear on what that means, but I think it has something to do with the shearing of the sheep and collecting mm. the wool into a bag. Probably. There's our epigram yes. for, for the story. Well, that, that's a little light literary criticism, finding this context. Yes, the cats also feature heavily in yes. this uh, poem. Because there's, there's actually a section in there where Haywood's advice to the young man before they go through too much on, he's like, well, who should I marry? And his comment is, well, whoever you want, like all cats look gray at night. Nice. I think most people are probably more familiar with that being a Benjamin Franklin quote or pseudo quote. I'm glad you brought Benjamin Franklin up because I was going to bring him up. Oh, okay. Well, just Haywood's back and forth about the age and youth. Benjamin Franklin has a whole essay on why older mistresses are better than younger ones. But anyway. Well, Haywood lands in the opposite where it's just like, don't, no, don't even have a mistress or have a wife. Right, right. Go, go without, young yeah. or old. So that's, the, that's kind of the framework there. Right. And I think that the, the broad strokes are pretty obvious here. So Wolf took the prompt to write a, a story in a bookstore. And then he was like, well, what else can I write about that's interesting? Yeah. <laughs> or he had just read some Haywood. And I don't know, because this is, this is the frame narrative, right? You have the young uh -huh. man and then the old widow with the expensive book. And she's fabulously wealthy. I think she says at the end, 
Um, fortunately, I'm terribly rich. Uh-huh. Uh, great line. So he marries both the old widow and the young maid because she's had the cell therapy to make her appear young. And so Wolf is like, it's fine. It was only a problem in the 16th century before we invented anti-aging technologies. Now, if you get a woman with, you know, extensive plastic surgery and um, <laughs> who uses lots of face cream, then you'll be fine. Um, I think that that's one reading of it. Yes. However, I do have questions around that when we get to the I end. I think that that makes a lot of sense. There is a ha-ha funny joke. Like, yep. Where there's the turn where he did marry both women. Right. But I don't think that's all that's going on here. No. So the boy's name was Michael. Yes. We should point out right there that if you've read any wolf, here's a biblical name, Archangel Michael, who is like God is the the meaning of the name. But his father called him Mike. His mother called him Mickey. And his teacher, who is both humorous and devout, the burning bush in her thoughts. and Mick when she called him in class. Yes. The burning bush, and that's capitalized. This is Moses, and God is speaking out of the burning bush. Yeah. I think that that means something. I don't think I'm reading it in a way that shouldn't be there. The principal, (laughs) that redheaded boy, so now we know, okay. So his hair is very red. Then there's a funny section in there where it says, a memory for boys' names not being among his principal accomplishments. Uh, groan. Yeah, there's a groan. <laughs> it's it's a dad joke. It's fine. It is. It it's also comes in later because we learn the principal is, is actually an AI. Yes. And he finds it odd that the principal and the teacher would treat him differently given that they're the same machine. And then we have made it all the way into, we, we made it one paragraph and one, uh, and the epigraph in. And we have lots of things to play with here, but I want to talk about the cat. Okay. Well, her name is Epigraph. Yes. I'm sorry, Epigraph. Yeah, it's two. Yes. I guess her first name's Epi. Her first name's Epi and her last name's Graph. And so in case you weren't paying attention to the Epigraph, Wolf is like, no, you're actually supposed to read the Epigraph and pay attention to it. And then he wrapped it in a dad joke too. Of course, as he would. (laughs) And then the, just the number of times that cats come up yes. in Haywood's poem, but then also in the story. The story's dominated by cats. Mm-hmm. So I did like the book here because he was uh, looking for another book as good as... Starfighters of the Combined Fleets. Of course, I was trying to see if that was an, the name of an actual book. Mm, I can't find anything on it. But you've already called this out where the the definition of the early printed books in-universe is different. Yes, which means we're in some kind of far future. Yeah. My initial impression was is that this was a science fiction story or novel. However, this may actually be a historical Right. This could be either a historical novel or a historical text. Yeah. Yeah. Or the thing I thought of was I used to have this really great book. It was called U.S. Naval Warships, and it was... (laughs) It was this little short hardcover, but it was super fat, and every page was the profile of a warship, and then subsequent pages were all of the stats about these warships. And so Starfighters of the Combined Fleets, mm. it could have been one of those, you know, it's it's like half 
a well, it's a history book or it's a you know it's a it's like a stat book. Yes, with all of the pictures and description of the different books about airplanes, and you can get a book like this, you know, airplanes of World War Two. Yeah, and it'll it'll be all of the the profiles, so you could identify them in flight, and then all of the 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 number of them that were in combat, and the number of missions that they flew, and all of that. So it it struck me that it might be something like that. No, that's a good point. And then an old lady comes in in a navy blue suit and shiny black shoes. With heels not quite as high as his mother's. Hmm, interesting. And then a big gray coat that looked warm, but none of those things were of interest to Michael just then. What was of interest was the bag she carried, which was old and large and real leather bound all the way around with straps and plainly heavy. She tried to lift it onto the counter to show Mr. Brown but could not raise it that high until Michael helped her, scooching down and pushing up on the bottom. Yeah. So I think already we have hints or shadows here of when we get into this later about the uh, requirements around selling the book. Yes. We have here that the bag that carried the book looked heavy and she couldn't lift it up. However, Michael, and we assume it's because he's young, but he's able to lift it easily up onto the counter. Yeah, and then... Describes her a little bit more. She smiles. It seemed to last a long time, but not long enough, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then she unbuckles the straps of the bags, big black ones that made Michael think of horses. And then he tries to look like a grown up so that he can be around to see what's so curious and in the bag. Such a great character moment that I think most of us have experienced where it, the adults are doing something and it just got interesting. Uh-huh. And so you it's like, nope, I, I actually do belong here. Yes. It's like the pretenses that you put on. And I think as a child, it was mostly just being as still and quiet as possible so they don't notice you. Mm-hmm. But there's also just that projecting an air of, yeah, I totally belong here. I love that little detail there. From her leather bag, she took a book of ordinary size with a dark brown cover and light brown pages. Unlike real books, it seemed to have no pictures. (laughs) Yes, real books. But there was a great deal of writing on all the pages, and Michael was at that age at which one begins to think that it might be better if there were fewer pictures after all and more print, which is definitely an age for a lot of kids. Yeah, I starred that there because I remember going through that with the touch of pretending like you're an adult and then also realizing that pictures take up a lot of page where there could be things that I'm interested in. There could in. be more story. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there's definitely a point I can remember. Okay. Yeah. Th- these are baby books, you know, whatever. I'm like first or second grade. So, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little funny yeah. looking back on it now, yeah. but I loved those two touches together there. Then they notice that, you know, Mr. Brown notices that it's old. And he tries to send her to a different bookseller that presumably deals with more antiquarian books. Yeah, but they don't want it. Yeah, not on the only terms I would offer it. Don't you want it either? But he doesn't know. I I don't know your terms. But no, I don't. It's not the sort of thing I handle. I'd want to give you a fair price. So clearly his hesitation here is that he knows it's a valuable book. He knows that he can't give her a fair purchase price for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd have to borrow money to be able to do that, which is, I don't know, if anyone's ever dealt with used and rare books, that's <laughs> it's a real challenge because, 
you know, you have to hold book in inventory for so long that there's no quick turnaround on your investment. So mm -hmm. typically, even if you're selling a quite valuable book, unless it's something that the bookseller knows there's a demand for, they're unlikely to advance very much money on it. Yeah. I never could on anything that was truly valuable, just buy it outright for anything close to what it was worth because the turnover is so slow. Yeah. And that's a, just a sad nature of it because, right. you know, you, you want to put it on the shelf. Right. And the coolest bookstores are the ones that have numerous valuable books. But the nature of the industry is such that unless you have money to burn mm -hmm. or money to just sit on for a long time. So you're basically in it for a very late, slow return on investment. Yeah. Or you're very, very fortunate and you happen to stumble across extremely rare and valuable things that you can get for very little money. And face-to-face -face with a customer across the counter is the hardest, that's the hardest transaction. If you're picking something up at an estate sale or whatever, or you stumble across something at a yard sale or pick it up in a lot at an auction, you know, offering a low price for something in those contexts is just much easier to do psychologically than when somebody brings something in knowing it to be valuable. And then mm -hmm. you have to make an offer on it. But there's there's just no reasonable way to pay anything close to what the book would actually sell for retail. Yeah. Also, while those may be the bookstores I like to browse, I rarely have the money to come out with very many tomes under my arm. So. Right. You're not picking up Incunabula all the time? N no. So I get it from a seller's perspective. Right. I could be buying something that has been sitting on the shelf for 20 years. Yeah, and it could sit there for a very long time. It may not sell in your lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I've been in that boat <laughs> holding yeah. on to something that w had been in my store for decades mm -hmm. and never succeeding in selling it. So we go through kind of some banter back and forth. And finally, she says, this old book was my late husband's most prized possession. He loved it. Mr. Brown says, I understand. He admits he's a collector. And then she interjects, and it loved him. He said it did. Yeah. So we get an interesting dimension here. I mean, it's one thing when you're buying a widow's box full of her husband's old books. You know, he told me not to. Sorry, a lot of bookseller experience coming out here. But yeah. this is just, he told me not to just sell them at a yard sale, that they were worth something. And there's an emotional connection there. She probably didn't you know, the handful of experiences I had, she didn't care about the books particularly. She just knew that he cared about them. Yeah. And so doesn't want them to just disappear. Yeah. And how do you put a price on vicarious emotional attachment? Right, right, right. You can't. And I mean, it's very different from the, the heir who's like, oh, how many dollars can I get for this? How how fast can I turn this into cash? Mm -hmm. But there's clearly the, the emotional connection going on here. Yeah. So and she clarifies... He wasn't making a joke. Yes. And she said, trust me, we were married for 50 years, so I know when he was serious. Yeah, a nice long relationship. Yeah, so what, that'd put her about 70 years old? 70, 72, something, something like that, depending on how young she got married. So essentially, she ends up paying him to hold the book, put it up for sale, and then let her make the final decision when someone makes an offer on it. Yeah. Which seems like a very odd request. Yes, it, it's a very odd arrangement. I could imagine hesitating as a bookseller. And the sense that I'm getting is that this book is, does not fit in with the rest of his collection. He probably has things that are popular, newer, on the shelves, 
And while he deals in used books, it's not like it's going on a shelf with a bunch of other antiquarian books. It's kind of it's it's kind of on its own. I think that's an accurate read because the first thing he tried to do was pass her off. Right. To someone else. Yeah. He ends up agreeing to the terms. Yes. And then Mr. Brown put the brown book open in the window farthest from the door with a sign that he made over it. And when Mr. Brown, after half a dozen nervous glances at the book, gone into his office above the shop, Michael went out into the street and read the sign. Incunabulum. On consignment. Make offer. So one thing we we get here, too, is that he's aware that it's very valuable. Yes. He's displaying it out in the window. Yes. And he keeps looking at it because there's liability and cost there. It's so valuable. He's not even sure what he could do with it if if he had to pay because it was lost or stolen. Yes. And so the case that it's in and the fact that she paid him money, we're getting this accumulating sense of its value. Yeah. Yeah, and it's standing open on a small stand that looked very much like real wood, and it's open to a story. And before we get to that story, I feel like that looked very much like real wood is another call out that either we're in a future where this type of stuff is manufactured or 3D printed, or maybe it's grown in a lab for all we know, but it's called out so that we know it's a little bit unusual. We're accruing details that we are not in our current time period. All right, the tale of the dwarf and the children of the Sphinx. It's a fairly long story, so I don't think we should read the whole thing aloud. No. But it starts off with a dwarf who has been making his life begging and stealing, and he gets thrown out of a village. And so then he lays down on the ground and falls asleep and has a dream. Yeah. Did you look up any comments on this? Uh... No, I didn't. Okay. I just, I just read the story. After I read it, I looked up comments and I found one comment on Reddit discussing the story. Okay. They were complaining about the... Oh, they didn't like the story? They didn't like the, I'm using air quotes here, but the sex scene in the story. Oh, yeah. So he's dreaming that he's tall instead of a dwarf Mm -hmm. and a great spinning wind comes toward him and in it is some creature that is a beautiful young woman with long hair who's naked and she says you must force me we yield only when forced and so then in a couple of lines it's he kissed her and he bestows his love upon her three (laughs) times yep and then he wakes up finds out oh nope he's still a dwarf and it's not a young woman it's a great beast beside him and with the cat theme. Yes. A paw upon his chest was soft as thistle down, big as a saddle, and strong as iron. Yeah, and it's a woman's face. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, a beast with paws. And then she says, I have had my way with you three times. So flipping or reversing what was narrated in the dream. Yeah, because she says you must force me. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he's there's no way he could. She's well, she's so a powerful. You're saying that the comment on Reddit complained about this scene. Yeah. Okay. And was it that it was effectively rape? Was that their rape or another awkward Gene Wolfe sex scene was the Oh. Yeah. Well, it's so minimally detailed. 
And it doesn't seem, it seems, <laughs> everything here seems consensual. <laughs> yeah. And Despite what's also in a dream. Said. Yes, in a dream and not what's being said. So, yeah. So that's what was, I don't know. It just sometimes people, we're, we're definitely in myth. Yes, there's a, a beautiful woman that's also a beast appears in a whirlwind. This is definitely mythical. But even within the mythical context, this is not Zeus transforming himself in order to assault a young woman. Yeah. This is not a swan or a no, a no, beam or a of light. Or, or... Yeah, this is pretty mild myth, and she is happy, and he is the only thing that he regrets is that he woke up and he still has his limitations. But she's quite complimentary about his um, proportions and performance. So, yeah. So, and she does ask a gift. Yeah. And if it be in my power, you shall have it. Then make me great and powerful. The poor dwarf stammered, and small and stunted no more. And so she grants it, but it's only for one night. Mm-hmm. And he has to nurse to get it, so that's a little weird. But It is, but that but was- it's also mythical. Yeah. Small aside here. So I think this would have been in college. I came across one of John Wesley's published books, and there's a section in there for about curing tuberculosis. Okay. Well- I'm sorry, I'm very puzzled so, here. So this, looking back on it, most of this medical advice is not very sound or good medical advice for our modern age. But one of the things that he had suggested was, it says, suck a healthy woman for it worked for my father. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and so- John Wesley, the Methodist minister, John Wesley. Yes, that one. Interesting. Yeah, and so that- even further, a little tiny note here. So it's with the long S. So the S's at the beginning of words used to be printed, so it looked more like a F, but it because it only it wasn't a full F with the crossbar. It only had a half one. Oh no! <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it caused a. So in in the discussions in the class, it had caused a lot of people were like, what does he mean? Why is he saying this? There's the image of John Wesley decontextualized outside of space and time and put into our modern age and all that that entails. So I did research on it. And what it amounted to is the the advice that he was given, um, one, was fairly common of doctors of that time period. And two, modern medicine to an extent has kind of, there is some some defensibility. Yeah. Nursing. It, nursing has like healthy it helps with the immune system milk. for, yeah. for well, it, I think that, infants. Well, I think that's pretty well known that yes. infants gain health from their mother. Yeah. Yeah. And so while this story is a little odd, like it is. if we were sh- time shifting this and putting it back in a mythic or a different age, I don't think that the what happens is that odd. Oh, it doesn't seem odd in the mythical sense to me. It's just, it's one of those things that it's a little, it's just funny in a way because it's, yeah, we we do live in a very different culture now. We do. Maybe I'm being overly defensive here because I feel like people read Wolf decontextualized and Wolf is much more in conversation with ancient Greco-Roman writers in the Middle Ages and the Judaic Christian tradition than he is, even though he's working in tropes of modern literary right. fiction. Well, and the the idea that modern medicine has made perfectly clear that if you there's an illness going around, 
a breastfeeding mother is her her body is sending antibodies through the breast milk to the baby. And there's lots of theories about how a woman's body can adjust vitamin and protein levels based on baby's saliva. <laughs> and so that the, you know, basically what Wolf and I <laughs> and I'm saying women are witches, but it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. You don't need to call Monty Python to drown us or burn us. <laughs> so the the nursing yep. um, has an effect. Yeah, he becomes extremely powerful and tall and large. Yeah. He's as large as she is. Yeah, and he roars. Yes, and he seems to be very happy about that. And he goes back to the town that kicked him out. To take his revenge, right? Yeah, but then he flips the roof off of one house and he looks down and there's a man who's afraid and his family's in there and they're afraid. And the man was too weak with fear to hold his spear. And then he pitied them. Yeah. So now that the situation's reversed. Right. Now that he's the powerful one, he doesn't actually want revenge. Yeah. He just goes away. He does. Then he and his mate bounded whole leagues and raced across the desert and reached the mountains bounded from rock to rock there, glorying until the sun rose. Yes. So then she leaves him, but not until she tells him how it would be with him, which is excellent phrasing, archaic and wonderful, Mm -hmm. and gives you fair warning of what happens next, which is that he vomits up children. Yeah. As one does. Did you have thoughts about that? Um, Not particularly. Okay. Although, you know, male of the species giving birth is always a little... Weird. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of the male seahorse. Yes, I have. And you know, and it, I'm it's glad. It's so you... viscerally disturbing yeah. to me. I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't, that wasn't one of the ones that I had even thought about. When... Okay. So I attached this to a, a different thread. Oh, okay. So the Sphinx is usually known for her wit and one of the most. Famous example, I think I'm okay with saying famous examples, is so she would uh, sit outside the city and ask uh, riddles, and then if people couldn't answer them, she either threw them into the sea below or would eat them. And then so like the the famous riddle, like what walks on four legs in the morning and two midday and then three three in the evening, and then the answer is a man because infant, upright, and then with a cane. And then, so I'm going to make two more leaps here. So in the beginning, the Phoenicians invented the alphabet. <laughs> yes. Sorry, go ahead. In that mythic, the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, that wisdom is attacked. It's, it's feminine. But then also in the Jewish tradition, wisdom is feminine. So if you look in Proverbs. Wisdom is a woman. Wisdom is a she woman. She sets her table. Yeah. yeah. What I think a lot of people find is an odd twist is that then Jesus himself, sometimes because he's wisdom, he refers to himself as a woman. And one example mm-hmm. is where um, he says he's a hen mm-hmm. calling the chicks, oh, Jerusalem, why don't you Why don't you come to me? So you have wisdom personified as a woman, but it, it, it's not that unusual for the, in the time for even a man to refer to himself in the feminine. Yes. When he When identified with wisdom. When identified as wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I think here we have 
the Sphinx is supposed to be identified with wisdom because with wit. Because the Sphinx, yeah. Yeah, wit, riddles, that type of stuff. So while I missed the seahorse, I did look up about creatures that give birth from their mouth. Yes. And there are two. So like creature creatures or cryptozoological creatures? Uh, plenty the liar. <laughs> like, plenty the unreliable types. Of, yes. Like, okay. Yeah. So we're more in like crypto. Yes. So one, I don't think it's relevant, but just because- there's you have so a completest few. impulse. You're gonna yeah. Go ahead and tell so us. it's crows, ravens were sometimes thought to be. Um, Aristotle said no, that doesn't make any sense. That's just part of their mating ritual, and like so they're doing the like their dances and tapping their beaks. But the other one's the weasel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the way that this gets kind of moved and encapsulated, and probably in a way that would be interesting to readers of the book of the new sun, but there's different ways. So there's like the literal meaning and there's a metaphorical meaning and a spiritual meaning. So the weasel gets identified with birthing from its mouth because it listens and it's through its ear. And then when it gossips, that's the, so it's gossiping and then it brings forth its children. And I think that's what we're supposed to have in mind as we read this, but not in a negative sense because it's the Sphinx who's wisdom. So he takes wisdom into him and then the, and then he births out his children. Right. Especially with the way that this story ends, I think that that is the, we're supposed to have the, the weasel in mind, but not as gossip. Not as, not in a negative sense as the production of words. Yeah. Well, and the first child is named Pen. Yes. Because his birth had been foretold, right? Mm-hmm. For those of us who listen to The Dead Man, just want to point out that there's a crocodile in this story too. Well, a fear of crocodiles, but... Oh, excellent. Good yeah. to know. Connections everywhere. Yeah, so he gives birth to three children, two boys and then a girl. And then he picks them up, he carries them, found, begged, stole milk and blood. On which he fed them. So when he picks them up, just to tie in another cat theme there, he, as some other might hold a litter of kittens is yes. the way he holds his children. Yeah, we, we, we got to get the cat reference in here. Well. Sorry. <laughs> well, we like cats around here, right? I do. Okay. There's a fairly large section here about how they're, they're living and mo- they're they're eking out an existence. So they've inherited their father's way of life where he's he's stealing and then they're doing similar things where they get in trouble because they're stealing from other people and it's it's a hard life. But one of the things that he tells them because they ask about their mother and he's like, no, she's this. She's great. She's powerful. But they, But they don't see her. Yes. So then- one day, and it, it's not entirely clear here, the children are older, though. Yes. They go out to the desert, and he calls for her. Right. And the other people hear him calling, and they, they don't realize it's him, the right. dwarf. Well, and I love how, and this came a few lines earlier, small though he was, his voice was large and held the pain of a thousand beatings and the pain of a lover who knows that love is past. Ugh, so good. <laughs> yep. But then also something there, too, when, when, with words... Like we get a change in the words there and word is tied back in with wisdom and with logos. Yes. So there is a 
I feel like there's we're seeing part of the change that these are the first, not necessarily the first, but these are parts of that change that are coming. And then there's, they talk back and forth about, oh, well, we won't leave you father. And then it's right. like, well, if mom doesn't come, I'm going to go work on the ships and right. various I'm going to have a career and, and I'm loyal to you. And if our monster mother doesn't come, yeah. Uh, but then she does come. Yeah. Even though they said that they they weren't going to leave them, they go. Well, yeah. She, her coming transforms them. Yeah. And ennobles them to be like her. Yes. But then his daughter, she turns around and she beckons for him to come. Yeah. Glances back for him. And then in a great word choice, and he bounded after her. Yeah. He's a cat now, too. Yeah. <laughs> As a cat. They're body. all cats together. So not only did her coming change her children, but she's the bridge. Yes. Where in one sense, he asked to no longer be small and weak. And she's like, well, I think I can do this, but only for a night. And he views that as the end. Uh, it's like, oh, well, I got to run around and we knocked the roof off the house. and But I ran up to the mountains with you. Mm -hmm. And so he like, that's okay. Well, I had my... Fulfillment yes. of that. Yes. However, she put things into motion that one took her children yes. with him and raised them up. But then through their children together, her and her children were able to raise him up. And so he has the fulfillment of his wish now. Yes. And and seemingly permanent, although that's where the story ends for us. Yeah. That's the end of the page. And then Michael has to go home and he thinks about it and for it had made clear to him certain things about which he had wondered but raised questions too i'm very curious what things it made clear to him so am i because that's not called out anywhere no as john haywood said and so late met that i fear we part not yet quoth the baker to the pillory that sounds kind of familiar doesn't it Thank you.